0: good evening class and welcome we are here for our screw class and there is some music playing that uh some of you may recognize i'm going to let it play for a little bit and see if you can figure out what it is it's something that has a connection to what we'll be talking about tonight with letter 21. Should be ringing some bells for some of you. guesses as to what that is? If any of you guessed that it was from the Lord of the Rings, you would be on the right track. And if you knew it was from the Two Towers, you would be on the right track. But the important part is that it is the theme of a character in the Lord of the Rings called Gollum. And we are going to talk a little bit about Gollum with tonight's letter and his relationship to uh, some of the themes that Lewis is talking about tonight. But before we go any farther, let me open us up in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather virtually uh, this evening to examine the work that your servant C.S. Lewis has done in the Screw Tape Letters. Lord, we pray that as we look at this book, that we would be drawn deeply into the truth of your word and deeply into the truth of the things of your kingdom. And that the result of that might be not only that we would annoy the devil, but that we would lead lives that are full of beauty and truth and purpose that would help us uh, as we seek after you, to do that with our whole heart. We pray your blessing on our time tonight, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, I am excited tonight for us to jump into letter 21, and as we get ready to do that, let's start by reviewing our theme scripture verse from Ephesians 6, uh, starting with verse 11. And if you've memorized that or have it in front of you, uh, let's say that together out loud. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. As we've said before, this is a great verse because It is very proactive and it is very clear that we are in the midst of a battle. We are in a battle where there is an enemy whose desire is to take us out. And one of the gifts of the Screwtape Letters is that it gives us kind of an insider's view on the strategy of the opposing forces. This is kind of like intelligence from the other side, and therefore we do well to listen to it and what we may be able to learn from it. So tonight, I wanna just remind us again of some of the reasons we're studying this book. First, lessons on understanding the battle in which we find ourselves. Second, lessons on thinking Christianly and developing a Christian worldview. One of the things that is so important for us is to learn to think. We live in a culture where we are accustomed to sound bites and uh, easy ways of trying to understand the world around us. And the fact of the matter is we as Christians are called to love God with our minds. And that is an important aspect of what screw tape Letters can help us to do. Thirdly, lessons on the psychology of temptation, realizing that Satan has different ways of trying to get at us and being aware of what those are so that we can be proactive in fighting against his schemes. Fourthly, lessons on cultivating habits that will deepen our faith in Jesus Christ. Habits are the things our lives are made of, and many of our habits are not constructed in such a way that they support our worldview or support the idea that we are seeking after Christ as our top priority. And then lastly, lessons on living a boldly Christian life, not just a life where Christianity is one component of a schedule that's full of lots of different things, something where Christianity is kind of a side dish on the plate of all of the different courses that are part of our lives. Instead, Christianity should be the marinade that permeates everything about what we do and who we are, so that we can live boldly, to live with joy, to live with purpose, to live with confidence, the life that Christ gives us, and to run that race that he has set out for us. So we talked a lot about the importance of habits over uh, this course, and each week we come up with different habits to annoy the devil. And we have come up with lots and lots of these, and you may have noticed that they begin to fall into certain categories. Categories of things to set your mind on, categories of things to cultivate, Uh, categories of ways of viewing the world, and tonight will be no different from that, Uh, but we will find uh, some habits this evening that are ones we have not talked about before, but are again signs of things that Lewis anticipated would happen to the culture that we are now finding ourselves surrounded by so to do a little bit of review going back to letter 17 uh, you might remember that was when we were starting to talk about the seven deadly sins and we talked about how the idea of sin is in itself a radical concept these days sin uh, the idea that there's actually something that's wrong something that shouldn't be done uh, doesn't fit in very well with our Uh, society's affirmation of everything and saying that no matter what you think or feel uh, you should pursue it uh, because there's only wrong for you um, if you are being inauthentic uh, to the truths that you can speak in your own life. Now of course this is a radically different idea than what the gospel tells us that sin is part and parcel of the human condition, and therefore we need to be very aware of it. So during the season of Lent, it used to be the custom of the church to use the seven deadly sins as a way of looking at uh, where we might be falling short, to remind ourselves about the areas that the human race is prone to stumble in. So, in letter 17, the first habit is to practice regular self-examination with respect to the seven deadly sins. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. And then, to proactively practice kindness and self-forgetfulness, especially toward those serving you. Thirdly, keep fleshly appetites in check and do not pursue them as an end in themselves. We are encouraged by our culture to pursue all our fleshly appetites, that any instinct that we have deserves to be followed, because it's authentic to us. But Lewis tells us in Screwtape that one of the things that Satan wants us to do is to follow those appetites with no filter of whether it's good or right, Uh, But instead, we should just follow it. So for us to annoy the devil, keeping those appetites in check and to refuse to pursue them as ends in themselves is very important. Cultivating equanimity and good humor, especially in stressful situations. Many of of us find ourselves in stressful situations right now, whether it was like our friend Libby last week trying to listen uh, with Star Wars video games playing loudly in the background, or whether it is just our frustration of being cooped up with our family day after day after day after day. All the more reason that cultivating equanimity and good humor is important. And remember, as we've said, that word cultivate is a strong word. Cultivating is not easy. It means reading out weeds, it means digging hard, chopping things up, pulling out rocks, fertilizing, all of that. Cultivating is hard work. And then lastly from letter 17, practice generosity in all your actions and with your possessions. We live in a culture that is not one that is prone toward generosity. We tend to be very guarded about our own things. We worry about what will happen if we let somebody use something that belongs to us. Uh, We worry about insurance that's designed to make sure um, that we are always covered if anything happens to anything that we own. And the problem is that we become so possessive of those things that we believe we own, that in fact what has happened is that those things own us. So to annoy the devil, practice generosity. Then from letter 18, practice the countercultural, scriptural standard of complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy when it comes to sex. We live in a culture where there's lots and lots and lots of talk about sex, and there's lots of talk about throwing off the constraints that societies usually had about sex, and throwing off shame associated with any sexual behavior. But the scriptures are very clear that the only appropriate context for sexual expression is heterosexual marriage. That doesn't mean that we are to look down on people that struggle with this issue, but it does mean that we are to uphold and practice the scriptural countercultural standard. The second habit from letter 18 is to adopt the other focused paradigm of love that refuses to act as if love is a zero sum game. Part of the problem is that we forget that the source of all love is in the Trinity, that God himself is a fellowship, and that we are created in his image. And that image means that we are built for fellowship, and it is an other-centered fellowship. When we look at the Trinity, it is a fountain that is overflowing with life and self-giving and generosity. It is not one that is looking to get its own needs met. And therefore, as Christians, we are to practice a type of love that is not about getting our needs met but is all about serving and loving the other person. This is that standard of agape love that we see revealed in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we are to resist the cultural standard that believes that feelings of being in love are the foundation of marriage And let me hasten to say there's nothing wrong with feelings of being in love and marriage. That's a great thing. But part of this whole idea that comes from a worldview that says humans are animals just like any other creature and that we are designed with desires that we should just follow uh, is that our feelings become the things that we serve. We are told in scripture that it is not our feelings that are to guide us, but the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And the problem with feelings is that they are fickle and they are fleeting and they can by no means serve as the foundation for any relationship that can last. Fourthly, uphold the virtue of chastity. Rather than using feelings of being in love as an excuse for serial promiscuity. It used to be that chastity was something that was admired, but now it is, particularly among teenagers, something that's often looked down on and made fun of as if there's something wrong with you if you choose to wait until marriage. So Christians have some work to do in this area to help balance out Uh, that very skewed cultural perspective about chastity. And fifthly, cultivate and practice a biblical understanding of love. One of the issues that we have is that Christians have very easily been seduced by the world's idea of what love is. Part of the problem with that is that we're surrounded in media, and movies, and television, and novels, and all of that, with ideas of love that have nothing to do with Scripture. They are all about getting our needs met. They're about our feelings. Uh, They are far away from the standard of laying down one's life for one's friends, Of loving the way that God loved Jesus, the way that Jesus loves us. That is the biblical standard and as Christians we're called to practice that. And we talked about in past weeks that part of what set the early Christians apart and part of what made it so radical when the Christian faith began taking off in the Roman Empire was the incredible way that Christians loved one another. And very often there was that refrain from pagan writers and Roman officials commenting on see how those Christians love one another. My friends, we desperately need to reclaim that understanding. Then from letter 19, seek to understand God as the creator of love and daily abide in the love of God. God's love is a real thing. It is not a feeling. It is an attitude that God chooses to have, a favor toward us. Uh, there's that great Old Testament word chesed, which is kind of a mix of grace and loving kindness and mercy. And it describes God's chosen attitude, his willed attitude toward each one of us. And as we understand God's love in that way, it makes us understand that when we are called to love as he does, that it is to be an act of our will and a commitment, not just a feeling. Second, we are to share God's love with others, especially those who may not believe or who do not understand God's love. There are many people who have been wounded by Christians, including some of us. People who have been wounded by those who failed to love, by those who judged and looked down upon rather than sought to help and sought to encourage. There are so many desperately hurting people around us And we need to share God's love with them, not just keep it for ourselves, but to remember that it is the greatest news ever to know that you are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of a loving creator who wants to be in relationship with you is good news to a culture that is in despair and is desperately alone. Thirdly, resolve to take any state of mind or feeling and experience it through the perspective of the kingdom of God. Part of the issue that so many of us have in following Christ boldly is that we have used the world's standards as the perspective and the lens through which we view reality. And the problem with that is that when we begin to adopt that, then scripture doesn't make quite so much sense to us or when we bump up against it we try to find some way to uh, dismiss the truth of God's word because it's culturally uncomfortable. And what we need to do is to think of the perspective of God's kingdom as the framework of reality and to interpret our experience through it instead of the other way around. Again another uh, habit that relates to that is cultivating an identity that is uh, just so importantly centered on the fact that marriage is God's invention and it's only to be pursued in a Christian context and not just because of feeling in love and that it is not the be-all and end-all state. One of the great problems we have in the church is that because of our culture's idolization of feelings, we have tended to idolize marriage and to make people who are single feel that they are somehow less than or that they're left out of God's love and that he sees them as second-class citizens. And my friends, nothing could be further from the truth. And understanding that marriage is... A call that God puts on some people's lives but not everyone's and that singleness can be a gift that is a profound gift of the Holy Spirit is so very important part of that understanding means that Christians will pursue marriage only in a Christian context and this idea of marrying people because you feel in love when that person doesn't share your faith Is one of those things that puts Christians on a very very slippery slope because they are in opposition to the standards that God's Word has given us. Then from letter 20, hold fast to the truth that Satan's attacks are not forever and that yielding is not the only solution. We saw that in last week's letter that Satan loves to make us think that when he is attacking us that there is no way it is ever going to end and that we might as well just give in to the temptation and get it over with. Yet nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Screwtape says to Wormwood that one of the worst things that he did was to let the cat out of the bag about this That by continuing to attack for so long, God finally stepped in and stopped the temptation. And so the patient realized, oh, this whole idea that I have to give in is wrong. But unfortunately, many of us live thinking that giving in is the easiest way to get rid of temptation. But remember, Scripture tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Scripture also tells us that we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, that no temptation has overcome us, which is not common to man, and that with the temptation, God will also provide for us the way of escape. Secondly, from letter 20, cultivate an identity that is grounded in your being made in the image of God and resist cultural pressure to define yourselves in terms of your sexual preference. This whole identity battle that's going on in our culture right now is really a battle about whether we are created by God or we are created by ourselves. The unanimous witness of the scriptures is that we are beautifully and wonderfully made by a creative God and that no two of us are alike and that there is wonder and mystery in that and that the greatest joy in life is living into who we were created to be. But what our culture tells us is that we are a blank slate, a tabula rasa, and that biology and everything else is just data, and that we are free to choose our own identity. And unfortunately, the result of that is that many people are living profoundly disordered lives where they are in rebellion against who they were created to be. This whole idea that our sexuality is the only or even the most important part of us is found nowhere in scripture. And so the idea that that would become our prime identifier is totally at odds with what God's will for us is. We need to remember that we are made in God's image, that we are made as creators, that we are made as people for whom truth, beauty, and goodness are important. All of these things that God has created and surrounded us with in this good creation and that we are not simply sexual creatures. That is a part of who we are but it is not our identity. The third understanding from last week is to understand that physical beauty is fleeting and resist focusing on outward appearances and be being seduced by that societal notion of what constitutes beauty. The letter last week did a great job of talking about how every period of human history has different ideas of what's beautiful. The Ruma-esque, uh nudes of these voluptuous women. Uh, that now would be thought of as overweight and people that we would think need to go to a gym before they should go out in public. Uh, It just shows you how radically the ideas of what's beautiful and attractive can change. The same thing in fashion. Uh, This is true for women and men. There are times when beards are really fashionable for men and then other times when they are absolutely not. Short skirts for women Or times when short skirts are thought of as not fashionable at all. Remember the big hair of the 70s. Uh, All of these things are fads. And Screwtape says they're to be encouraged so that people will lean into those and want to be with people who mirror what is thought of as beautiful at that moment in society. And the great thing about that, according to Screwtape, is that if you can use that sort of emphasis on appearance as a basis for marriage, it cannot possibly endure. And so people will be stuck in marriages in which they're miserable because they've entered them going after a cultural idea, a faddish cultural idea of what's beautiful in the moment. And then the next habit out of that letter is this whole idea of cultivating a scriptural perspective on the opposite sex. Being careful to adopt a scriptural perspective on the body and to avoid and resist with all of our being the objectification of the bodies of others as objects for our own gratification. We live in a culture where objectification of women's bodies, and now even men's, in pornography, in cinema, uh, in advertising, is normative. And we are told all throughout scripture that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image, and that each person is full of the dignity of what it means to be made in the image of God, and that we are therefore never To regard someone as an object. And then lastly, hold fast to the Christian view of marriage based on scriptural standards and resist being led by feelings alone or lust. And we spent a long time last week leaning into Ephesians 5, uh, which is that great chapter Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6 about relationships and it's gotten kind of a bad rap because people tend to only pull out out of context the verse of wives submit to your husbands but in fact the whole discussion begins with talking about giving thanks to god for his creation and how he has made each one of us and that we are to submit ourselves to one another out of reverence for christ wives are to submit to their husbands But we as husbands are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her and gave up his very life for her. The whole standard in there is about self-giving, serving the other, other other-focused, self-sacrificing, servant-hearted love, something which our world today needs more than ever. So that brings us to letter 21, which again uh, is in this section of letters about marriage and uh, love, but it's going to take a little bit of a detour, uh, which is an important one to talk about. So let me go ahead and read this letter. If you have your book, uh, please get that out right now. And uh, feel free to highlight or mark up this letter uh, because there's a lot of great stuff in here. So here we go. My dear Wormwood, yes, a period of sexual temptation is an excellent time for working in a subordinate attack on the patient's peevishness. It may even be the main attack as long as he thinks it is the subordinate one. But here, as in everything else, the way must be prepared for your moral assault by darkening his intellect. Men are not angered by mere misfortune, but by misfortune conceived as injury. And the sense of injury depends on the feeling that a legitimate claim has been denied. The more claims on life, therefore, that your patient can be induced to make, the more often he will feel injured, and as a result, ill-tempered. Now you will have noticed that nothing throws him to a passion so easily as to find a tract of time which he reckoned on having at his own disposal unexpectedly taken from him. It is the unexpected visitor when he looked forward to a quiet evening, or the friend's talkative wife turning up when he looked forward to a -a tête-à-tête with the friend that throw him out of gear. Now, he is not yet so uncharitable or slothful that these small demands on his courtesy are in themselves too much for it. They anger him because he regards his time as his own and feels that it is being stolen. You must therefore zealously guard in his mind the curious assumption, my time is my own. Let him have the feeling that he starts each day as the lawful possessor of 24 hours. Let him feel as a grievous tax, that portion of this property, which he has to make over to his employers, and as a generous donation, that further portion which he allows to religious duties. But what he must never be permitted to doubt is that the total from which these deductions have been made was in some mysterious sense his own personal birthright. You have here a delicate task. The assumption which you want him to go on making is so absurd that if once it is questioned, even we cannot find a shred of argument in its defense. The man can neither make nor retain one moment of time. It all comes to him by pure gift. He might as well regard the sun and the moon as his chattels. He is also, in theory, committed to a total service of the enemy, and if the enemy appeared to him in bodily form and demanded that total service for even one day, he would not refuse. He would be greatly relieved, in fact, if that one day involved nothing harder than listening to the conversation of a foolish woman, and he would be relieved almost to the pitch of disappointment if for one half hour in that day the enemy said, now you may go and amuse yourself. Now, if he thinks about his assumption for a moment, even he is bound to realize that he is actually in this situation every day. When I speak of preserving this assumption in his mind, therefore, the last thing I mean you to do is to furnish him with arguments in its defense. There aren't any. Your task is purely negative. Don't let his thoughts come anywhere near it. Wrap a darkness about it. And in the center of the darkness, let his sense of ownership in time lie silent, uninspected, and operative. The sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven and in hell, and we must keep them doing so. Much of the modern resistance to chastity comes from men's beliefs that they own their bodies, those vast and perilous estates pulsating with the energy that made the worlds, in which they find themselves without their consent, and from which they are ejected at the pleasure of another. It is as if a royal child whom his father has placed for love's sake and titular command of some great province under the real rule of wise counselors should come to fancy he really owns the cities, the forest, and the corn in the same way as he owns the bricks on the nursery floor. We produce this sense of ownership not only by pride, but by confusion. We teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my father, my master, and my country to my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership, Even in the nursery, a child can be taught to mean by my teddy bear, not the old imagined recipient of affection to whom it stands in such special relation, for that is what the enemy will teach them to mean if we are not careful, but instead the bear I can pull to pieces if I like. And at the other end of the scale, we have taught men to say my God, in a sense not really very different from my boots, meaning the God on whom I have a claim for my distinguished services and whom I exploit from the pulpit, the God I have done a corner in. And all the time the joke is the word mine in its fully possessive sense cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, either our father or the enemy will say, Mine, of each thing that exists, and specially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them, whatever happens. At present, the enemy says, Mine, of everything on the pedantic legalistic ground that he made it. Our father hopes in the end to say mine of all things on the more realistic and dynamic ground of conquest. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. This is a terrific letter because it is really all about the idea of entitlement, an idea that certainly existed during Lewis's time, but one that we might say has come to full flower, if you will, uh, in our own time. And Lewis nails this idea about how the idea of entitlement and possession gets under the skin of the Christian and causes all sorts of havoc. And he starts this letter off talking about peevishness. Peevishness is a great word that we don't use very often. And it is a word that has a very interesting etymology. There's a debate among scholars about whether it comes from the Latin word for perverse, meaning just the person that likes to be objectionable for the heck of it, or if it comes from the plaintive cry Uh, of an animal rooted in an old Scottish word Uh, but in any case it has implicit in it the idea of complaining about everything and complaining that we have not gotten our rights that we have been mistreated that things are not as they should be and we are not getting what we deserve. So the first habit to cultivate is cultivate good humor and kindness and flee peevishness. Good humor and kindness are very often in short supply. And that may be in our families, in the workplace, in our relationships. But they are things that need to be cultivated by Christians. We are commanded in Scripture that we are to be people who are kind. We are to be people who are characterized by thanksgiving and even rejoicing. Remember in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And that word reasonableness could be translated gentleness, good humor, kindliness. We are to flee from peevishness. Now, it's all very easy for us to look around and think about, oh yes, that person I know over there, that person is peevish. But my friends, I'm afraid the issue is that we are peevish. Maybe not all the time, but we all have our moments. And particularly in our culture today, the idea of venting has a achieved some sort of uh, righteous stance that somehow there's something good about venting and that we deserve to be able to do that but the scriptures tell us something different from that that if we're going to do any venting it should be alone in our prayers to god uh, to the psalm like the psalmist uh, raging in the psalms uh, but it is not to be complaining about our lot in life to be continually in a posture of resenting or looking to be offended. The second habit to annoy the devil from this letter, view life each day, each hour, each moment as a gift from God rather than as an entitlement. We all too often feel that our time is our own and that we deserve to be able to do with it what we want to, and that anyone that tries to tell us differently is to be resisted. And there certainly is a strong streak of this going on right now. Many of us feel like we're on day 247,898 of quarantine. We don't like being told we need to stay in particularly when it's for the sake of others. If we're feeling just fine, why can't we do what we want to? Well, my friends, let me suggest that that is exactly what Screwtape is talking about here, exactly the attitude he wants to cultivate. Instead, Christians should be seeing each day as a gift, looking for the giftedness in each moment, what God might be asking of us, and certainly thinking about how we can use our time and the way that we do or don't do things as a way to serve and to love others. And Genesis, right at the very beginning, shows us that our life is not our own. Genesis 2-7, and the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Our life is literally breathed into us by God, and it is he who holds it in his hands, and it is he who can take it back at any moment. And then as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, "And which of you, by being anxious, Can add a single moment to his life. It is not up to us to determine the span of our lives. It is up to us to cultivate gratitude and a perspective that each moment is a gift. It reminds me of one of those scenes in the movie Gone with the Wind, which despite some of its problems also has some really epic, beautiful, profound scenes. And you may remember that there is a sundial um, on the O'Hara Place that shows up from time to time on the screen. And the legend on that sundial says, Do not squander time. It is the stuff life is made of. My friends, are you tempted to squander time? I know I am. And I know so often I feel my time is my own and when plans change at the last minute and annoys me, Um, all of that shows me that this perspective of life and time as a gift is so important to cultivate. And thirdly, and related to this, cultivate a framework for your life, that is a way of looking at reality based on stewardship rather than ownership as the underlying principle. When we believe that we own our lives, we make very different choices than we do if we understand that we are stewards of our lives, of our time, of the gifts that God has given us, of our relationships, of our possessions, all of those things. If we understand and the framework of our lives is built around being stewards rather than owners, it will transform us and here scripture uh, again reminds us from the psalm psalm 24 the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof the world and all those who dwell therein it's all the lord's and then in the parable of the talents jesus telling this parable says his master said to him Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. It is true that there is joy that comes from being a good steward when you have a heart that wants to please your master. But without that framework, we resent God's claims on our lives because we think that he's interfering with our ownership. Nothing could be further from the truth. The fourth habit, consider daily, daily, the fact that as a Christian you are not your own, but you are in service to the Lord. Remember that your body and the breath of life within it are not your own, but God's creation and possession, and do not surrender them to Satan's conquest. Screwtape tells Wormwood that the enemy wants to get it all, that God wants to have it all, but that the Father below also wants to have it all. And the Father below wants to get it all by seeking to conquer in the lives of Christians, little by little, the territory that is God's. And one of the chief ways he does that is through our own selfishness, causing us to think that we own things that we're entitled to things that are actually God's and are designed for His service. And again, from 1 Corinthians 6, we talked about this verse last week. You are not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And then from Romans, but now that you have been set free from sin. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord the wages of sin is death Satan wants by making us sin By making us think that our bodies are our own, that our possessions are our own, that we can get what we want and we can feel what we want and pursue it and go after it regardless of God's word and God's will, the result of that is sin and the wages of that is death. That the breath of life goes out of us and at the end of time we belong not to the Lord but to Satan. And there's joy in the underworld about that. But remember that in heaven, there's great joy over each sinner who repents. And then fifth, be wary of using the word mine or my, or thinking of anything in those terms, especially God. There's a great parable in the Gospel of Luke called the parable of the rich fool. And it's the guy who is doing great. His crops are producing wonderfully, which of course requires the rain and the ground and everything else that he had nothing to do with. And he says to himself after all of this success, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus tells this parable, my friends, and look how he says, I, 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 my, 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 mine, mine, mine. This man is setting himself up for misery. He will leave all of those things behind, and he will leave behind the joy that could have been his of serving and having a steward's perspective, and most sadly he will leave behind the possibility of spending eternity with the God who made him, who loves him, and made him for that purpose. Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. My friends, we should strive to be rich toward God, because that annoys the heck out of the devil. And this whole idea of mine, my possessions, my life, is so deeply ingrained in us. And this brings us back full circle to that music we were listening to, which is the Gollum theme from Lord of the Rings. And Gollum is one of Tolkien's great characters. And what he portrays is a someone who starts off as a normal, probably a hobbit, but gets consumed with lust and greed for this beautiful ring. And eventually his whole life revolves around serving that ring. And he begins calling that ring, my precious, my precious. And everything that he does is built around protecting that ring. And what you see so vividly in the books and in the movie is that he becomes enslaved by it and that all the rest of his life falls away. He has no friends, no one loves him, he loves no one. He is a creature of great despair, one to be pitied, to be looked upon and to think, how could someone take the gift of life and let it waste away in such a horrible, horrible way. And yet Tolkien shows us that that's what happens when we begin to see things as our own, when we become peevish. Gollum is the very definition of peevish. He thinks he owns the ring, he's entitled to it, and anyone who so much as looks at it gets a snarl and a glare, if not a knife in the back. So, my friends, this is a great letter to remind us to look out for peevishness, to be aware that it's probably rooted somewhere in each one of our lives, and to ask for God's help in resisting it. Let's close with that quotation from Screwtape Letter 8. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys let us pray father we confess to you the peevishness and entitlement of our lives lord we pray that you would break open our hearts that we would be people who are glad and generous and kind that we are willing to see everything through your lens, to see every moment that you've given us as a moment rich in possibility for your kingdom, and that in doing that we might live into the joy and love that you desire for us. We thank you for all of these great gifts and pray that you would open our hearts to rejoice and thank you, for we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to be with you. look forward to next time I will be sending out uh, the link uh, for next week uh, when we send out the materials from this week. And in the meantime, take care and God bless you.